Good morning. Um, I don't know about you, but I don't think there's any better way to begin the new year than just like this, together this morning, worshiping our Lord and Savior. Amen. And, and one of my favorite things is singing that redeemed version of Old Lang Syne on, on New, Year's, New Year's Day. Um, it's great to see Neely up here too on the Clavinova, the next generation, hoping to lead worship. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing to see. Um, we will be in Galatians chapter 5, verses... 16 through 24 specifically, if you'd like to turn there. We're continuing into the exhortation section of this letter, which began in chapter 4. Um, we've seen so far that the, the Galatians are to follow Paul's example of by living in freedom from the Mosaic law. That uh, salvation isn't Jesus plus anything. It's, it's through Jesus alone that they are to stand in this freedom that is theirs in Christ. Uh, that they must not submit to the yoke of the law for their salvation and must resist the inducements to do so um, from the false teachers, from the Judaizers. <clears throat> and they were called to, they were summoned to this freedom and such freedom manifests itself in serving one another in love. Um, and if you might recall from our last time in Galatians, we saw that our, our Christian liberty would be expressed in control of self, love to and of one another, and obedience to God. The man or woman who has grasped Christian liberty will be identifiable by their self-control, their loving service, and by their heartfelt obedience to God. This is God's order for His people, for His born-again children. <clears throat> so in verses 13 through 15, Paul has given the what of Christian liberty, if you will, and in today's passage, he's going to give the how of Christian liberty. Our passage this morning is, Lord willing, I hope, going to help us answer the question, how can I, as as a Christian believer, live a self-controlled, serving, heartfelt, obedient life. So the three things I, I want us to see from our passage that results in the self-controlled, serving, heartfelt, obedient life of the believer are one, a war to be waged from verses 16 through 18, two, a warning to be heeded from verses 19 through 21, and lastly, a, a hope to be embraced from verses 20 through 24. Um, let's read our passage this morning. Galatians 5, 16 through 24. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, 
jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I want to warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. So the first thing we see that Paul says is necessary for believers to live the self-controlled, serving, and obedient life is that there is a war to be waged. And this war is to be waged not between believers and others, it, it, but the, it is between the believer and themselves. It is a war between the spirit and the flesh. The flesh in, in Scripture, especially when used in contrast to the spirit, refers to the sinful nature and is the nature of all human beings inherited from Adam. And remnants of the sinful nature are still present in those indwelt with the Holy Spirit. All born-again, regenerate believers still have remnants of the flesh, the old man within them. That's why Paul had to warn the Galatians in verse 13 that though they had been called to freedom in Christ, not to use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh of the old man within them. That's why Paul had to warn... um, And and that's why he says in, in verse 17 that the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They are in total opposition to one another. And, and that this opposition between the flesh and the Spirit keep us from doing the things we want to do. It's what he spoke of in Romans 7 that we, we just read. The things I want to do, I don't do. It's, it's the battle between the flesh and the Spirit. <clears throat> In this war within the believer, the flesh in opposition to the Spirit keeps the desires of the Spirit from being fully realized and the Spirit keeps the desires of the flesh from becoming a sustained reality. This is the war that should be raging in every believer. And in every war, there there are marching orders given to the soldiers as to how they are to fight the battle. And our commander-in-chief, through the Apostle Paul, has given us our marching orders in this war against the flesh. In verse 16, the command given is, walk by the Spirit, and the result being, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk in Scripture regularly represents the pattern of conduct in one's life. It indicates continuous action. It also indicates progress. When you walk, you are progressing to some destination, somewhere. So, as Christians, we are not walking aimlessly, we walk by the Spirit. That is, we make decisions and choices according to the Holy Holy Spirit's guidance and are able to act accordingly by the power that the Holy Spirit supplies. This is sanctification as opposed to justification that is wholly a work of God alone through the work of Christ alone, that we might be declared not guilty before God, sanctification is the indwelt believer seeking to follow the guidance of the Spirit 
and being empowered by the Spirit to do so. Whereas God does all the work for us to be saved, we work with the Spirit in seeking to obey God out of love for what He has done for us and becoming more like Christ. So there is this tension between divine enablement and human choice in sanctification. On the one hand, we believers must choose to submit to the Spirit day by day, while on the other hand, being empowered by the, by the Holy Spirit to actually live a life pleasing to God. So how do we actually do this? How do we walk by the Spirit? The answers are simple, but they're not easy. It is by exercising the common means of grace, reading the Scriptures, prayer, and communion with the saints. The Scriptures are the guidance of the Spirit. They are where we find how we are to walk, where we find the template of the day-to-day life that is pleasing to God. They are the sword of the Spirit that we wield by the power of the Spirit to slay the works of the flesh and Satan in this world. Prayer is the means by which we seek out and ask for the Spirit's enabling power. Uh, The prayers of illumination that we pray at the beginning of every sermon. Those should be our prayers every day, in our daily prayer, that the Spirit would illuminate our minds, give us the power to do what we need to do each and every day, to live according to God's Word. And the communion of the saints. We exhort one another and admonish one another um, to help us in our battle against sin. Um, to see in us what we oftentimes fail to see in ourselves. This is one of the very reasons we are commanded in Hebrews 10 to not neglect meeting together. The Spirit leads His people through His people. And we have two promises if we walk by and are led by the Spirit. The first is in verse 16. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And the second is in verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. If we pattern our lives after the Spirit, we can, we can be assured that our lives will not be patterned after the flesh. And if we pattern our lives after the Spirit, we can be assured that we are no longer under the condemnation of the law. We are promised true freedom. So a war between the flesh and the Spirit is a necessary component of life in the Spirit. The second necessity is a warning to be heeded. Read with me verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul here gives a list or a picture of what a life led by the flesh looks like and produces. He calls them works here as opposed to the fruit of the Spirit. He calls them works because it is what man brings forth from his own striving and his own strength in the old man, in the old Adam. And fruit refers to what the Spirit produces because it is what the Spirit produces in those who rely 
on the power and enabling of the Spirit and who are born again by the Spirit. The works of the flesh are the means and actions that flow out of fallen human nature and its desires. Apart from the transforming work of the Spirit, these are the actions towards which sinful humans instinctively gravitate. And he says they are evident that they are easily discerned by anyone with an ounce of spiritual discernment. And, and this list is not exhaustive. Uh, we know that because at the end of the list he says, and things like these. And Paul gives us other lists, one, one of which we'll look at shortly, that have other works of the flesh that are not listed here. So for our time and purpose today, we're going to take kind of a quick flyover um, of this list to get an idea of how each of these works of the flesh are defined. I'm not going to focus on any certain ones, just kind of give a quick flyover to get an idea of what he's speaking about whenever he he is telling us these. And uh, I, I cite uh, Tom Schreiner here for these definitions. Sexual immorality um, is the Greek word porneia, which is a general term for sexual sin, um, often referring to sex outside of marriage, looking at, at sexual images. Impurity uh, focuses on the defilement and filthiness of the mind generated by sexual sin. Sensuality emphasizes the lack of restraint and unbridled passion of sexual license. It throws off all restraint and flaunts itself. Idolatry is the failure to praise and thank God for His goodness and turn to the worship of idols. It is worship of creation rather than the Creator. It is putting gift over giver. And you can see an overlap in a lot of these. One leads to the under. Sin begets sin. Sorcery which uh, the Greek word for that is pharmakia, where, where we get our words for phar pharmaceuticals, uh, pharmacy, um, denotes a lack of trust in God, whereby people try to manipulate circumstances to bring about the end they desire. It turns uh, one from trust in the living God to dependence on other sources. Enmity is the hatred that lies at the root of discord. Strife is the contention that drives people from one another. Uh, jealousy of the sinful type. There are, uh, God is said to be jealous for his, for his adulterous bride, for, for what is his, uh, but there is a, a sinful jealousy that is consumed by self-glorification. Fits of anger or savage bursts of anger that are poured out on others, an uncontrolled temper that leaves in its wake people who are the object of one's vitriol. Rivalries, grasp after honor and praise for oneself and in, instead of focusing on the good of others and brings discord. Dissensions is the division and fragmentation in a community as a result of sin. Um, divisions, a selfish exclusiveness and party spirit that creates division where there should be none. Envy is the desire to possess what others have so that one is not satisfied with the gifts God has given. It is the begrudging spirit that cannot bear to contemplate someone else's prosperity. And drunkenness and orgies denote lifestyles marked by lack of restraint and overindulgence. Again, putting the creation over the creator who gives themselves over to revelry and wild parties. 
So now that we have somewhat an idea of, of what these works of the flesh look like, we have the warning to be heeded. The end of verse 21 says, I warn you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Other versions might say those who practice such things um, or live like this. So it is those whose lives are patterned after these behaviors, whose life is defined by these works of the flesh that show themselves not to be transformed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, will not inherit eternal life, are, are hell-bound. Um, in his book, Everyone's a Theologian, the late Dr. R.C. Sproul said, this passage and the ones like it are some of the scariest in all of Scripture. And I, I think one of the things that makes them especially frightful in our day is something called easy believism. Easy believism is the view that one only needs to believe in Jesus for salvation with no corresponding need for a committed life of Christian discipleship as proof of that salvation. It teaches Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. Ephesians 2, 8-9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own. It is a gift of God, not a result of works that no man may boast. And this is where easy believism stops. But verse 10 goes on to say, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for or unto good works, which God prepared for beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, this verse shares the same verbiage as, as our passage in, in Galatians, that we are to walk. Um, this, um, so, so rather than being saved by some easy act of our own wills, we are saved by the hand of God Almighty, by His will and for His use. We are His servants, and, and from the moment of salvation by faith, we embark on a journey of preordained good works that are the evidence of that salvation and new birth. Another dangerous idea or teaching that flows out from, from this idea of easy believism is that of the carnal Christian. Uh, the, idea that the, carnal, the idea of the carnal Christian says that a person may receive Christ as Savior during a religious experience, but never manifest evidence of a changed life. They're kind of, I think they overlap quite a bit. Easy believism probably leads to the idea of the carnal Christian. Um, so, it says that a person may be an unrepentant adulterer, liar, or a thief, but, but they're saved because they prayed the prayer or gave some intellectual assent to the gospel. They're just a, a carnal Christian. It creates a, a separate category of non-spiritual believer that is totally unbiblical. Um, the Bible nowhere supports the idea that a Christian can remain carnal for an entire lifetime. Um, the, the scriptures present only two categories of people, Christians and non-Christians, believers and unbelievers, the regenerate and the unregenerate. And I just want to be clear, I'm not saying that Christians don't sin. They, they don't fall into sin. But to live a, a totally unrepentant lifestyle over the course of years and, and still hold the name of Christian, I, I, I would say you need to examine yourself. So, so what is so scary and dangerous about these false teachings 
is that they give people a false security, a false assurance of salvation. Um, if you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Paul says here that those who hold to such teachings are deceived. Um, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. So to call ourselves a Christian, but to live a lifestyle of unrepentant sexual immorality and impurity is to be deceived. To call ourselves a Christian, but to live a lifestyle of unrepentant lack of restraint and overindulgence is to be deceived. To call ourselves a Christian, but be consumed by unrepentant enmity and envy is to be deceived. To be born again is to say with Paul in verse 11, that is what I was. That is what my life was patterned after before. I was a liar and a cheat, but because of the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, I am no longer. I was a drunk and given over to all kinds of overindulgence and gluttony, but because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, my desire for the things of the Spirit are greater than the desires of the things of the flesh. And like I said, that doesn't mean we'll never slip up or have battles with the desire of the flesh. I mean, Paul speaks of that in, in Romans chapter 7. What it means is that the pattern of our life will be marked and identified not by works of the flesh, but by the fruit of the Spirit. And our lives will be marked by repentance and not indifference. If you are in my hearing today and you have fell prey to the deception of easy believism or the lie of the carnal Christian, it is my prayer that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be deceived no more. If you consider yourself under the weight of the law and under its condemnation for failure to keep it, I say, come to Christ this morning. Come to Christ and receive all you need for your right standing before God. Receive His righteousness. Receive the penalty that He bore in your place for your sins. Receive the eternal life that He has earned for you. And begin to walk with Him. Begin to walk with Him as your Lord and Savior. And if that is you this morning, let someone know. Let someone know you have received Christ, an elder in the church. Say something to somebody and let us know and let's walk with you with the Spirit. So we have considered the war to be waged and the warning to be heeded. Now let's consider the hope to be embraced. From verses 22 through 24 in our focal passage. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh 
with its passions and desires. So Paul contrasts here the works of the flesh, what man produces in his own strength in the sinful nature with the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. The virtues that are produced in the life of believer by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They are the produce of the Spirit, so to speak. The fruit, the produce of the Spirit. Uh, The singular use of fruit here, I think, refers to the fact that these virtues do not stand alone or separate from one another, that they will be produced in the life of the believer to to varying degrees in all believers. And the imagery of fruit tells us um, uh, three things, I think, about how the Spirit works in in the cultivating of this fruit in the life of the believer. Uh, Christian growth, the one thing is the Christian growth is is gradual, Um, just as gradual as the growth of an ear of corn or or a tomato. Um, I think the uh, farmers can testify to this, that you don't go out and and plant one day, then the next day you're ready to harvest. As awesome and, and uh, as easy as that would be, that isn't how it happens. Uh, no, the crops take time to mature. Their, their growth can only be measured over time. And, and so it is with the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, very often the fruit of the Spirit will be growing in us, but we never realize it till say, something happens. Uh, some, some adversity, some trouble in our life comes up, and uh, we think, man, a couple of years ago, I wouldn't have handled that that way. You know, um, I can see patience and, and self-control being cultivated in my life. Um, that shows that the, the Spirit has been growing gradually and unnoticed. Um, the, gr- the growth of the Spirit uh, is also inevitable. Uh, there will be growth. Uh, it's not, um, if you do grow, it's, it's you will if you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, you will grow in the Spirit if you are Christ's. Uh, it's like a man who was buried under a, a marble slab and, and somehow an acorn got into his grave. And as the acorn grew and put out roots, gradually and unnoticed, found cracks in the marble and split it right open. And such is the Spirit's power against our sinful nature. Um, it's, it's encouraging to know that Whatever the Christian life is like, the fruit of the Spirit will burst through. This is encouragement for us. How, how minute it might seem. Um, is it growing? That's, that's all we need to focus on. Um, it forces us to examine ourselves too. If we've been a Christian for a number of years, it should cause us to ask ourselves, is there fruit growing in my life? Um, we are most assuredly saved by faith and not the growing of fruit but we are not saved by a fruitless faith. Um, the produce of the Spirit will be produced in those saved by faith. And, and that's why we need the communion of the saints to help us to see that too. A lot of times we don't see it in ourselves. We don't see the things that other people can see. The fruit of the Spirit um, also has internal roots. It's not simply a change in traits or characteristics or behave, simple behavior modification. It is a change at the very core of our being. It is a change in our very nature and in what we desire. Our our desires have been changed. Um, Do apples on an apple tree make it alive? No, it's it's the root that makes them alive, right? It's it's what's inside the tree that, that, that makes the fruit. The apples don't give it life. They are the sign that the tree is alive. And so it is with those who have been made alive in Christ, who have been born from above and transformed 
from the inside out by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why we as Christians should focus more on fruits of the Spirit over giftings. Um, the Spirit does specially and specifically gift people in certain ways, and we should celebrate those. We should celebrate those and, um, and thank God for graciously bestowing those upon us. Um, but whereas gifts vary and are, are diverse among believers, the fruit of the Spirit is produced in all of those indwelt by the Spirit. It's not like a certain person gets this fruit and then another one gets this fruit. No, we all, we all um, exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. And, and that's why Paul, when addressing an overemphasis uh, on the giftings in the church at Corinth, says in, in 1 Corinthians 13, many of us are familiar with this passage, um, says, if I speak in tongues of men or angels, or if I have prophetic powers and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, or faith enough to move mountains, or, or give away all that I have, or even deliver myself up to death, but I have not love, I am nothing. I have not what all the other fruits flow out of, I am nothing. So now I would like to take a flyover, as we did with the works of the flesh, with the fruit of the Spirit here in, uh, in verses 22 through 23. Um, I've borrowed these definitions from, from Timothy Keller. And I, I find these definitions particularly helpful because with them, he offers their counterfeit. Um, if you recall, Paul stated that, in, that the works of the flesh were obvious or evident. He, he doesn't say that with the Spirit's fruit. Um, uh, and I think the reason for that is the great deceiver Satan is very cunning and our flesh that remains is, is very weak. And we can be blind to the fact that what we think to be fruit of the Spirit can actually be twisted into a work of the, of the flesh masquerading as, as fruit of the Spirit. Um, it was very convicting for me to, to read these definitions and these counterfeits because because I can, I can see them in my own life. So, and, and I hope that through them, it is uh, my hope and prayer that it will lead us into a better understanding of where to, we need to focus our attention with the Spirit's transforming power in our own lives. So first is love. Uh, means to serve a person for their good and intrinsic value not for what a person brings to us, the self-sacrificial love, agape love, self-giving love, more than a feeling, right? It's an action. It's, and its opposite is fear, self-protection, abusing of others. Its counterfeit is selfish affection, where you are attracted to someone and treat them well because of how they may make you feel about yourself. Joy is a delight in God for the sheer beauty and worth of who He is. Its opposite is hopelessness and despair, and its counterfeit is elation that is based on experiencing blessing, not the blesser, uh, causing mood swings based on circumstances. Peace is a confidence that rests in wisdom and control of God rather than in our own. It replaces anxiety and worry. Its counterfeit would be indifference and apathy. It's easy to have peace when you just don't care. Uh, patience, an ability to face trouble without blowing up or hitting out. Its opposite is resentment towards God and others, and its counterfeits 
or criticism and lack of care. Again, it's easy to be patient when you don't really care. Kindness is the ability to serve others practically in a way which makes me vulnerable, which comes from having a, a deep inner security. Its opposite would be envy, which leaves me unable to rejoice in another's joy. And it, it, its fake alternative is manipulative good deeds, doing good for others so I can congratulate myself and feel I am good enough for others and God. Goodness or integrity is being the same person in every situation. This is not the same as being always truthful but not always loving uh, or getting things off your chest to make yourself feel better. Faithfulness, to be utterly reliable and true to your word. Its opposite is to be an opportunist, a friend only in good times, and its counterfeit is to be loving but not truthful, so that you are never willing to confront or challenge. Gentleness or humility, it's a total outward focus, a self-forgetfulness that is focused on serving others. It is neither superiority or inferiority, um, for it does not compare itself with others. And self-control, the ability to pursue the important the important over the urgent, rather than to be always impulsive or uncontrolled. The surprising counterfeit is a willpower which is based on pride and the need to feel in control. So as I said before, the, the purpose of giving these definitions with their opposites and counterfeits was to help us to see our blind spots, the places where we still need to grow in the Spirit. And I'm going to share with you um, what Tim Keller's thoughts on this also, because I think he says it very well. Uh, he says, quote, When we look closely at the fruit of the Spirit and see that one aspect of it cannot be seen in isolation from any of the others, we see that we are in far more need of growth in the fruit of the Spirit than we think. When we stop looking at our gifts as a sign that we are Christ-like and stop looking at our natural strengths as a sign we are Christ-like, but challenge ourselves to look at the nature, unity, and definitions of the Spirit, we have a much deeper sense of how we lack these things. And in knowing that we lack, we have the destination of our walk made clear, and we are not just left with what we lack in our destination, but a great and marvelous hope to fulfill what is lacking and to get us to our destination. And I want to conclude with that. At the end of the list of the spirits of the fruit or the fruit of the spirits, Paul says, against such things there is no law. At first glance, he seems to simply be saying that there is no law that prohibits the fruit of the spirit. And so there is no fault to be found in these virtues, which there, there is no law against. They, they are actually a fulfilling of the law. Or the point could be that the law can never produce these godly qualities, but only the work of the Spirit. The law weakened by the flesh is simply the schoolmaster that points out our sin and to a certain degree helps restrain it. But it cannot produce the righteousness necessary for life, but those who are led by the Spirit are not under 
the law. The Spirit produces the fruit, the righteousness that the law cannot. And what a wonderful truth it is that not because of anything in and of ourselves, but because of the Spirit that works in us, our works can be righteous. Not because of us, not because of our working, it's because of the Spirit working in them that our works are righteous in the sight of God. The Spirit accomplishes what the law and our flesh never could. And now to the great hope that we have in this life of war with the Spirit and the flesh. Read with me verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those who belong to Christ, who are in Christ, have crucified. Not they have the ability, not someday at some point they might. No, they have. And we have because He did. Paul says in in chapter 2, verse 20 of Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ issued the decisive blow to the flesh of believers at the cross. The sinful nature of believers has already been defeated, but as we know by experience, has not been destroyed. There is an already but not yet in the crucifying of the flesh. The the actual act of crucifixion helps here to understand it. When somebody is crucified, do they die right away? No. And that's how it is with our flesh. It's been crucified, and it is dying. And there will be a day when it will be totally gone. It is as good as dead. When we go home to be with the Lord, it will be gone. And then we shall be like Him. We fight not relying on our own strength. So until then, we fight. We fight the fight not marked by perfection, but by war against the flesh. We fight not relying on our own strength, but by the power of the Spirit. And we fight knowing that He has already conquered. And the fight assures us that we are His. Let us pray. Father God.